David was the middle of five kids, growing up in Rapid City, South Dakota. When he was 11, his new stepdad, trying to win him and his younger brother over, took them to a Kmart and told them they could pick out anything they wanted, up to $50. David picked a skateboard. Yellow wheels, red-orange deck, silver skull on the bottom. And it changed his life. I skated every day, like literally every day. I was obsessed with skateboarding. In fact, when I became 18, I moved to Southern California and uh, tried my hand as a professional skateboarder. That was my goal. David isn't totally sure why he picked a skateboard that day. Before his new obsession, he had been into wrestling and fishing. But he says that the moment he saw the skateboard, he thought, that's it. Back in those days, the punk rock culture and the skateboarding culture had a lot of overlap. This was the 80s and early 90s. Skateboarding was pretty countercultural at that time. And David became a punk rocker. We're the ones, at that time at least, that had purple hair, blue hair, dreadlocked hair, no hair, typically piercings, tattoos, and we, we sort of had a uniform. There was some variety to it, but punk rock culture was generally pretty anti-establishment and anti-mainstream, and built around an appreciation of punk rock music. I was a singer slash screamer, and I also played bass. This is David we're hearing. He was in a lot of punk rock bands at the time. The particular group of punk rock kids that I was a member of in our little community there, there were hundreds of us, were mostly vegan straight-edge kids. Straight-edge means that we abstained from drugs and cigarettes and alcohol And as a part of that, we were also, many of us, vegans and vegetarians. Eating animals is really pretty mainstream, if you think about it. And this is Rapid City, South Dakota. So that's right in the middle of the United States and right in the heart of the beef belt. And one day, in this city of about 55,000 people in the heart of the beef belt, David and his punk rock friends learned about a vegetarian restaurant that had just opened up. The first time I went into the restaurant, I was 18 years old. And it was a fairly unassuming little location in a strip mall, kind of in the back of the strip mall, actually. And it was called, unimaginatively enough, Veggies, which is just about, like, you know, (laughs) the most generic possible name for a vegetarian restaurant. David had just become a vegan that year. And along with the other vegan punk rockers in his group, he made a frequent habit of eating at this new restaurant. In addition to the food being vegan, it was also really good food. Almost every day, myself and some number of my punk rock community, it could be as few as one or two others or as many as a dozen of us, would go into veggies. This quaint cute, little unassuming restaurant at the back of a strip mall that was owned by Mary and Tom Burnt. And they were some of the strangest people that I had ever met. David realizes the irony of this today, punk rockers regarding other people as strange. But they really did look strange to them. We thought that these people, Tom and Mary and the other people that worked in the restaurant, were just the weirdest people ever. They looked like something frankly, straight out of a Laura Ingalls Wilder book, like straight out of Little House on the Prairie. You know, long dresses for the women and the girls. The men would all be wearing uh, suspenders and button-up shirts and sort of 
baggy slacks, usually with work boots. It was kind of Amish looking, but without the beards. And uh, they were just the nicest people. I mean, lovely, kind, helpful, sweet. Probably the best word that I could come up with to describe them was they were wholesome. They were wholesome. David remembers his group as being rowdy, obnoxious, and loud. They'd stick out when they were at Veggie's, which was primarily frequented by non-punk rocker clientele. And Mary, the owner, and Tom, the owner, married couple, they would just treat us... Like, we were just the most ordinary, wonderful people. They, they, we never got any indication. They never gave us any indication that we were unusual. And, and the, maybe the weirdest thing is that after we'd been there, oh, a few times, they would refer to everybody as brother and sister, those of us that went regularly. And so it was just so wild. You know, you'd walk in and uh, Mary would say, hey, Brother David. <laughs> It was obvious, immediately obvious, that these people were religious people, Christian people, because on their little signs, they would have Bible verses. On the tables, there were various religious books. They had a, a whole shelf that was free books you could take away. Now, I never, I never took any of these books because I wasn't particularly religiously interested or motivated at that time in my life. Tom and Mary weren't pushy about their religion. And while David and his friends weren't religiously interested, they were curious about the people who worked at the restaurant and about a lot of the things they did. We would ask them questions like, why do the girls and the women always wear dresses? And why are the men wearing suspenders? And why do you say brother? And why do you say sister? We just started inquiring, right? Because we were in there so often. You're just going to get to know these people. And they would inquire about us. You know, they would ask questions. It was very mutual back and forth. And one of the things that I distinctly remember was that in answering many of the questions that we would put to them, they would say, well, the Bible says, well, the Bible says. And I do remember being a little frustrated with that, actually, because sometimes I would really be pushing them or pressing them for a specific answer about something. And almost invariably, their answer would be, well, the Bible says, well, Scripture teaches. David and the other punk rockers kept coming back to this restaurant, became close enough to Mary that they started calling her Mama Mary. And though they didn't understand or care for her faith, they began to appreciate it. Once, she prayed for their safety on a trip his band was taking to perform in Minneapolis. Three of the members survived a near-death accident, and they credited Mary's prayer. After about a year of spending time at the restaurant, David began to be interested in Mary's faith. At least, more open to it. And she invited him to their house for vespers. I had no idea what that meant. They said, oh, you should come over to our house for vespers. We sing songs together. And I was like, oh, yeah, that sounds fun. My band is playing a punk rock show in like a week's time at the Atomic Cafe. You should come hear us play. And to her credit, she's like, yeah, I'll come. Yeah, I'd love to come. And so, like a week and a half later, you have to get this picture in your mind. Mary came. She brought like four of her friends. They're all dressed like Laura Ingalls Wilder. They've got the long dresses. This is in a total punk rock venue. There's like 150 hardcore punk rock kids there. And here are these like four girls and two men straight out of Little House in the Prairie standing at the back of the venue. And I'm up there playing just like, and just screaming my head off. 
pounding on this guitar, and they just sat through the whole show. And when it was done, I went up to Mary. I was like, hey, Mary, thanks so much for coming. You know, what did you guys think? And she's like, well, that was interesting. (laughs) (laughs) So then, you know, as a sort of kindness to her, I think it might have even been a, a, a bargain. She says, well, now you've got to come to Vespers. And so I went to her house uh, for Vespers, and it was like 15 people standing around a painfully out-of-tune piano singing songs that I'd never heard before. Blessed Assurance and uh, Tis So Sweet to Trust in Jesus and, you know, Marching to Zion. And they're just singing these songs, and they were singing them with such passion and volume and enthusiasm, even though the music styles, you know, the music style that we had performed at the Atomic Cafe, which was like hardcore, emo, straight-edge punk, and then like 15 people standing around a painfully out-of-tune piano singing hymns, they could not have been more different. They could not have been more contrasted. Actually, the passion was the same. They were passionate in their singing. They were passionate about what they were saying. You could tell they believed what they were singing. And frankly, that had a drawing effect on me. I remember very distinctly that first Vesper service. Around this time, Mary asked David if he wanted to study the Bible. And after a few months, he agreed. So when I finally consented and I show up to the Bible study, she wasn't even there. It was Josh, this kid Josh. And The thing that was so difficult about Josh is he talked so slowly. (laughs) And me, I talk like two times as fast as anybody, right? And so, oh man, that was a painful experience. That was a deeply painful experience, to be honest. David showed up at one of the studies with a list of what he considered to be very difficult questions about things like hell, predestination, eternal conscious torment, people of other faiths. And so I just start putting these questions one by one to Josh, and he's just totally unfazed. He's like, that's a really good question. Why don't we look at, and he would start taking me to these passages in Scripture and then reading them to me. I was like, wow, this guy is not afraid of these questions at all. David appreciated the way Josh answered the questions. It gave him the sense that maybe the whole Christianity thing was far more reasonable and credible than he had imagined it to be. But David was also pretty flaky. Like, I would set up appointments and then be like, no, I can't, I'm going skating, or no, I can't, I'm going rock climbing. He thinks he showed up for maybe eight studies over six months. And then his time in Rapid City was up. He had enrolled in a pre-med program at the University of Wyoming, six hours away. He was 21 at the time. When it came time for me to go to the University of Wyoming, Mary said, hey, look, I want you to read this book. This book has changed my life. I know that you've been doing some Bible studies. Take this book. And so she gave me a book, a paperback book that was sort of light blue cover, and it had a picture of the world on it, and it just said the great controversy across the top, and it said E.G. White at the bottom. And I took that book, frankly, with no intention of reading it. I took it as a kind of courtesy to her. And if she had not taken the time to write on the inside cover something very nice, very friendly, 
recommending the book to me as a friend and basically thanking me for all the money that I'd spent in a restaurant and all the time that I'd gone in there and all the friendship that we developed, I would have thrown that book away. I mean, I really had very little interest in reading a very thick religious book. But I kept it because it was kind of a souvenir. It was a kind of token of this incredible restaurant with these incredible people. So I took it with me to college. And then it sat on my shelf. Patriarchs and Prophets explains in the book, Prophets and Kings, your hands on the desire of ages. Ellen White makes it clear in Acts of the Apostles that Great Controversy 612 says... From Types and Symbols, this is The Conflict Audible. I'm Libby. I'm Ivan. And today on our show, Volume 5, The Great Controversy. So it is a story that puts human history, specifically biblical history, and then the history of the Mediterranean and North Atlantic in a spiritual and um, transcendent context. This is Lisa Clark Diller. And I am professor of early modern world history at Southern Adventist University. Early modern history as a historical period begins in 1492 with the integration of the Americas. With the integration of the Americas, something very new happens, and we call that up until like the 18th century, early modern, kind of from the 1400s to the 1700s in the wider Mediterranean and Atlantic world. This period of time includes the Reformation, which is a large part of what is described in The Great Controversy. Unlike the other books in the Conflict of the Ages series, The Great Controversy is not really a retelling of the Bible story. It moves beyond it into non-biblical church history. So we wanted to talk to someone who studies history. So it is an attempt to make sense of what has happened in history from a heavenly, supernatural, powers of good and evil perspective. And it is not all of world history. I think that's very important as someone who teaches world societies. You know, where are the Philippines in this story? Where are the people, the Aboriginal people of Australia in this story? You know, this is not the paradigm of the great controversy, which says that God is attempting to work out his will for love to flourish to compel love while acknowledging human freedom, working in and through human actions in spite of human actions, that that is something that can be true and is true all over the world. But this is a story that traces it through the things that we know of as biblical history and then Western European and North Atlantic, i.e. the United States history. It isn't intending to say that's the only time and place as God was working, but it is attempting to kind of draw it out and tell the story of those places with an eye to how God was working in spite of human frailty and misunderstanding. Lisa first read The Great Controversy as a young girl when she was around 11 years old. Some of her earliest memories even involved looking at the illustrations in the edition her family had, which was titled The Triumph of God's Love. I had, like, the Bible storybooks, and I was kind of used to the Bible stories that I saw in those, but The Triumph of God's Love had things from history in it that I had never seen before. And my dad told me when I was 9 or 10 that if I read that book, I could have it. 
And I was greedy and covetous for books as a, a young, myopic, nerdy child who spent a lot of time sitting in corners looking at books. It's very hard for anyone who knows me now to imagine how incredibly introverted I was in those days. But I, I wanted that. So I think I read Great Controversy under the Triumph of God's Love title in my 11th year by the time I was turned 12. Lisa appreciated the book, read it again in high school, along with some of Ellen's other books. And when she graduated from high school, her uncle and aunt gave her another edition of the Conflict of the Ages series. The old Red Books version of it. And I brought that into college and continued to read that almost daily. Lisa majored in history at Southern Adventist University and went on to graduate school. And in doing so, it became a little bit difficult for her to read The Great Controversy. Because the history was very, very pedantic and very specifically oriented in such a way that I I felt like, at, so part of the temperament of a historian is to say, what's the other side of the story? What stories are not being told? And there were so many gaps. I just found it less satisfying. And I was reading a lot of other stories on medieval church and the Reformation and things like that, that I found those much more interesting in order to get the history of that. After grad school, though, Lisa began teaching back at Southern, and one of her classes was on church history. And she recognized that her students, a lot of which were theology and religion majors, would have an understanding of church history that had been informed by the Great Controversy. In fact, it might be the only history book of that era that they had read, or at least that was intended for adults. And so I began to read through The Great Controversy again, trying to keep in time with the time period I was talking about in my church history survey. And so reading the sections of Ellen White that overlapped with that and using some of her ideas or quotes as part of my pedagogical tools. In working through the great controversy in this way, comparing it to current historical understandings about the development of the Christian church, and in discussing it with other Adventist historians, Lisa became more aware of different gaps in the story. So there's about 800 years that are missing between the early church and the development of Sunday worship in like the late 100s, early 200s. She doesn't give dates for it, but, you know, she describes the, that transition and then she has a few paragraphs that kind of jump to sort of or describe sort of popes maybe developing a little bit. And then we move straight to like the Waldenses um, and other people being persecuted, which is in like the 1100s or so. Pretty much everything else in there is just gets missed. That misses a, a lot of other reform movements within the church. The church had constant reform movements in missed places geographically. But it's a story that that kind of makes sense if what you're doing is saying, I'm going to check the history of, of God working in people's lives who were being persecuted. Lisa notes that it isn't really until the Reformation that most religious persecution begins to occur once nation states get involved in enforcing religion. Because actually for six, seven hundred years, the church doesn't persecute. The church has a hard time persecuting or enforcing things. It has to rely on the mechanisms of the state. Even the Spanish Inquisition, that's not a medieval thing. That's a Reformation-era thing. And that's run by the monarchs of Spain. 
So there is a medieval inquisition in Rome, but it's very limited. And so almost all of the like witch burnings and all the stuff that we think of, those are not medieval things. The Middle Ages, unfortunately, gets really a bad rap in some ways. I mean, there were terrible things about the Middle Ages. I mean, people treated each other terribly. But in terms of like religious persecution specifically, there is this blow up for a minute with the Cathars and the Waldenses in the 1100s. And then pretty much it's after the Reformation. There are some exceptions to this, but on the whole, if you are tracing the times in which the church is being persecuted, in which there are, say, great controversies taking place, there are some natural gaps in time. It is mostly a a history of persecution that Ellen White is tracing, and so that in many ways explains some of the gaps in time, but it's also, of course, primarily a Western European story, too. Lisa says that in addition to being selective in the time that is covered, the Great Controversy also follows a specific thread of Christianity, based in Western Europe. But she points out that the vast majority of Christians did not live in Western Europe, nor were they a part of the Western European Christian traditions. You know, in the medieval world, there are just parts of Western Europe where Latin was spoken in the church liturgy. Then there's a huge bunch of Christians where Greek is spoken or Russian. And then most of the rest of the churches break up around language. So you have the Coptic church in Egypt and the Ethiopian church and then Nestorian Christians, different kinds of, they call them monophysite Christians. I'm not sure if I'm saying that word right, but, you know, kind of based on their belief in the nature of Jesus. You know, there's Christians in the nation of Georgia and Armenia. The Nestorian Christians were the ones that went to Central Asia and were trying to to convert people like the Mongols and went to China during the Tang Dynasty and spread Christianity there. So these are people who know not the Pope, so to speak. That kind of stuff doesn't show up at all because, of course, the histories that Ellen White was reading in New England to the 19th century are primarily, of course, about Western Europe. We've mentioned already in other episodes that Ellen read extensively. She used a blend of things she was shown in vision with things she read that helped fill in details, along with the biblical account. But with the great controversy, there is much less biblical account. And so Ellen White was leaning on existing histories that had been written about the Christian church to fill in what she had seen in vision. As Lisa has mentioned, Part of Ellen's omissions in the Great Controversy could be explained by the fact that Ellen White was reading particular kinds of histories. And in the Great Controversy, Ellen White quoted and cited from two of these histories extensively, History of the Reformation by Jean-Henri Merle Jean de Bigne and The History of Protestantism by James Aitken Wiley. The point has been made a few times that Ellen didn't consider herself a historian or an authority on history. Her son, W.C. White, even wrote and spoke on that exact question with Ellen White's approval after the final edition of The Great Controversy was printed. Yes, there were details that God showed her, but there were also details that she borrowed from others. And if those turned out to be corrected by better historians, she was willing to update the details. Her point wasn't to be the source of history, but explain the meaning of history. She was trying to talk about history that most of her audience would have known. I mean, this wasn't history they weren't familiar with, but she would have been telling it in a way that was very specifically trying to engage them more in the story of what God was doing. And so I think anytime any historian is doing anything, and we even say this about the gospel writers, Jesus did lots of things that didn't show up in the gospels, but they were telling what they thought they needed to tell 
to make a particular point, you know, not to say this is the entire history of every act that Jesus did, but like we're telling you about the stuff you need to know about. And anytime any of us are doing that, like if you ask me to tell you about my life, if you ask me to tell you about my job, I'm going to pick particular things. I'm not never going to tell you 100% of everything, even if I could, you know, even if it was like possible time-wise and knowledge-wise for me to tell you everything. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to tell you the things I think you need to know for the purposes of this conversation and this relationship. Lisa says that because of what she understands the point of this book to be, the gaps she has mentioned don't really bother her. She's aware of them, but the thing that she thinks Ellen White is doing in this book is sharing a paradigm of history. And in the great controversy paradigm of history, God is at work in human free will. That doesn't mean that everything that humans choose is what God wants. The great controversy paradigm of history says, nah, actually, it could easily not be what God wants. Human beings have the ability to act against God's will, yet God is at work anyway. You know, in spite of it, through it, because of it, because of the choices we make, that that God is on the side of the weak and the lowly and the underdogs and that what looks like success in this world might not be what God sees as success. That's the great controversy paradigm of history. So when I, it influenced me as a historian so that I look at the underdogs and think, what can they teach us? Not that they're right about everything. Not that everybody who's on the underside of history is completely moral and, you know, someone I'd want to emulate. I mean, some of the Waldensies and the Cathars that were persecuted, they were kind of, you know, I would not want to believe what they believe theologically. But should they have been killed for it? No, I don't think so. So that's, to me, part of what the great controversy paradigm, which is always leading to, say, what makes love flourish, and that God is in the places where love is flourishing. And so when I'm studying the indigenous communities of South America, you know, when I'm studying medieval Japan, if I am seeing love flourishing, God is there and not that he's on the side of their kings. But so that means no matter where I'm studying in world history, I know that God did not abandon those people just because they didn't end up in our sacred texts. You know, I know that the Holy Spirit was still there and I can look for the places where love was flourishing and more to the point, when we say that Jesus is in the least of these, when I'm studying the people who are the least of these in any society, Jesus is there. One smallish detail that I think addresses this idea of gaps in an interesting way is that the Spanish edition of The Great Controversy has an extra chapter. The English edition has 42 chapters, but the Spanish edition inserts a 43rd chapter, chapter 13 titled El Despertar de España. And this is because, when preparing for the translation of the book into Spanish, it was noticed that Ellen White hadn't mentioned anything about the Reformation in Spain. It was suggested to her that it would be valuable to have a chapter on that topic. So with Ellen White's approval, C.C. Chrysler and H.H. Hall compiled a chapter dealing with that part of the Church's history, which has always been available in the Spanish edition and never included in the English edition. If you look at Ellen White's lifetime and her prophetic ministry, it spans a period of a little bit over 70 years. This is Merlin Burt. He's the new director of the Ellen G. White estate. She had her first vision in December of 1844. 
And the last vision that was recorded was in the spring of 1915. It's a little bit over 70 years. And her uh, experience during that time, God gave her many visions and dreams on many different topics, many different areas. But if you look at her whole life, the one overarching theme is the great controversy theme. It's all oriented towards the love of God in Christ and based on scripture. But nevertheless, that theme unfolds through her entire lifetime. And if you look at her writing, she writes most extensively on that. Merlin is the eighth director of the White Estate, which was first led by C.C. Chrysler, who we just mentioned, and followed by W.C. White, Ellen's son, and then Arthur White, her grandson. By now, you are probably very familiar with the theme of these books and how they came about, but we wanted to get a little bit more of the context for this particular book. She says that she had her first vision on the Great Controversy in 1848. We don't know just what she was shown. She didn't write anything up. It was really 10 years later in 1858, it was March 14, that she had this very important great controversy vision. You might remember some of this from our first episode. James and Ellen White were in Lovett's Grove, Ohio. And they were in a rural schoolhouse holding some meetings with people who were interested in the Sabbath and, and in the Bible and in prophecy and in, and in the second coming of Jesus and... They were coming to conversion, and a lot of prominent people in the community were interested. And so James and Ellen White had come to join with some of the other evangelists that had been working there, and they were there for those two days. And on Sabbath, March 13, John, the son of William and Betsy Avery, died. John was less than two years old, and we don't know very much about how it affected William and Betsy, but you can imagine how difficult that would be. On Sunday, the Advent believers in Lovett's Grove held a funeral service in that same schoolhouse. You've got to get the picture in your mind. It's a small building, you know, it would a typical country schoolhouse. There's about 40 people there. And they've created a type of a platform area or an area in the front, and there, here's the little casket with the little toddler laying there. And James White gets up, shares some comforting words, and then Ellen White uh, got up. And to use her words, she says, In, in the, the spring, spring of 1858, 1858, we visited Ohio and attended conferences at Green Springs, Gilboa, and Lovett's Grove. At Lovett's Grove, the Lord met with us, and his blessing rested upon us first day afternoon, there was a funeral service at the schoolhouse where our meetings were held. My husband was invited to give a discourse on the occasion. The people could not all get into the house. My husband was blessed with freedom, and the power of truth seemed to affect the hearers. When he had closed his remarks, I felt urged by the Spirit of the Lord to bear my testimony. As I was led to speak upon the coming of Christ and the resurrection and the cheering hope of the Christian, my soul triumphed in God. I drank in rich drafts of salvation. Heaven, sweet heaven, was the magnet to draw my soul upward, and I was wrapped in a vision of God's glory. Many important things were there revealed to me for the church. 
Ellen's vision lasted for two hours. And Ellen's record, of course, doesn't tell us anything about what it was like for those in the room. She was, after all, in vision. One can just imagine. People in mourning clothes, the sound of weeping, Ellen shouting glory. The father of the child, William Avery, did write about this experience a few decades later, in 1905. And he didn't give much detail about what it was like in the room either, but it's still interesting to hear. And he spoke of this time now many years before, and he's an Adventist, he became a Seventh-day Adventist. At the time, they weren't yet believers. They were still studying. But uh, I'll, I'll just read his words of this event. He says, The truth was preached here in Bowling Green, Ohio in 1858 by G.W. Holt. Quite a number came out and commenced to keep the Sabbath. In the spring of 1858, Brother James White and wife came to our place and held a few meetings to encourage us in the faith. While they were here, we lost a little boy. Brother White preached the funeral sermon, and during the service, Sister White was taken off in vision. She was in this condition when we went to the grave. It was a solemn time. Quite a number of the congregation remained until she came out of vision. Merlin points out that this would have been an exciting event. The people in Ohio would likely never have seen anything like this before. And so people are watching this and seeing this, and I'm sure the family too is amazed at this. And it goes on and on <laughs> and on and on. Now the family is there, they've got their little boy, and this is a, a service. And finally, he's saying here, they said, we've got to take the little one to bury him. And so while she's still in vision, they and some others leave the meeting and go to bury little John at the nearby cemetery that I've gone to see. That's right. The family left in the middle of her vision. And you, you're tempted to say, why did this happen this way? I mean, this isn't very considerate <laughs> of God because... I mean, this is a grieving family here. And they're having to leave this meeting with their loved one, and there's this disconnect, and everyone else is excited, and they're staying at the vision that's going on there. And so the family has less support. And so, you know, you could think all kinds of things here. But if you look back from a bigger perspective, it's really quite powerful. Because the vision of the great controversy and the final end of evil and sin and the new heavens and the new earth is in the context of a funeral. And it is, it is that certainty of victory over death and victory over sin and victory over evil that is the theme of the great controversy. And so from God's perspective, what better of a setting than to do it in this way, even though in a local sense, it seemed almost over the top, as it were, <laughs> for the people. In the vision, Ellen is explicitly told to write about what she has seen. Soon after, she is paralyzed. And yet she's shown by God that it's Satan attacking her and trying to keep her from sharing or writing out this vision. And yet she perseveres and God strengthens her. And so over the next few months, she writes this out, and it's finally published in the little book called Spiritual Gifts, Volume 1. 
Spiritual Gifts, Volume 1, is a very short book, 219 pages, compared to the 3,000-ish pages series this show is about. And in that short book, Ellen White touched briefly on the fall of Satan, the fall of man, and the plan of salvation. She then skipped forward to the life of Jesus and the apostles, and then covered church history, the Advent movement, and the end of time. Spiritual Gifts was published in 1858, the same year as her Great Controversy Vision, and you're well familiar with this process by now. As Ellen receives new light over time and recognizes the value of going into more depth, she revises and expands the first volume into others, and then that set of volumes into another set of volumes. And the second set of volumes was called The Spirit of Prophecy. Volume 4 dealt with the period of time from the fall of Jerusalem up through the end of time, and Ellen finished that volume in 1884. Around this time, a few things happen. First is that, in the 1880s, Ellen goes to Europe. And actually visits some of the sites of the Reformation and things that she had seen in vision. And in some instances, she felt like she recognized the places even, some of the geography. Another thing that happens is that The Spirit of Prophecy, Volume 4, sells really well. The book goes through 10 printings in four years. It's the first illustrated Ellen White book, by the way, and it sells well. And this nicer version is selling. And the combination of her trip to Europe, her realization that what she has been shown has a much broader impact that should go beyond Seventh-day Adventists to actually touch people all around the world because this is biblical truth, it's universal truth, a a framework of truth that needs to be understood. She begins the process of a third writing of a series on the Great Controversy. And this, of course, is the Conflict of the Ages series that this whole show is about. The series that takes us from the fall in heaven to the new heavens and the new earth. And she starts with the book that we know today as The Great Controversy, published in 1888. Ellen White is drawing some on things that she has previously written, or her assistants are drawing some of those things in. She's writing additional material. She's expanding on some things. She's maybe improving wording the way she's expressing it adding content. So it's a, it's more of a production. <laughs> uh, and this is true not only of Great Controversy, the 1888 edition, but it's true of all of the books. One thing that Ellen White has in mind while she's preparing the first book in the series is that she intends it to be for the public and not just for the church. So she changes wording. She would use in-house words. I should say, shouldn't say in-house, but in-church <laughs> words that people were comfortable with in the church. Some of them were typical Protestant ways of referring to Roman Catholics. Things like Romanism and Papists and Papi- you know, Papal, Papal's okay, but you know, kind of these negative zinger words that didn't seem like zinger words to, to them or to Protestants. But when you start saying them out publicly, it's, It's not right. It's not kind, you know, in that way. And so she's cognizant of this. She's mindful of this. And so she she softens the language, but not the message. 
Merlin shared that this softening of the language has led some people to think that the 1884 book, which preceded the Conflict of the Ages edition, is somehow more pure and more beautiful. But he says that that's a misunderstanding, because Ellen controlled the whole process behind the 1888 book. There is some softening of language, but there is also an expansion. Another thing, because it was intended for sharing and not just internal use, this book was very nicely printed. Ellen White and her team were really thoughtful about crafting the best possible version of this message, using more understandable language and design to make it as shareable as possible. And it sold very, very well. Well, my name is Gerhard Fandl. I'm retired. I worked at Biblical Research Institute at the General Conference. Since 1999, I retired the first time in 2012. Then I was asked to continue part-time until 2015. And since 2015, I am a volunteer working, still working for the Biblical Research Institute. The Biblical Research Institute is the office at the General Conference that deals with theological questions. It was started in 1975, though its roots go back to the 1940s. They publish articles, write books, host conferences. We have a group of scholars, Old and New Testament, systematic theology, who have experience, primarily also in teaching, and uh, come from the world field. To me, it sounds a little bit like an elite heist team with different specialists, some of whom keep coming back out of retirement to help out. But it's probably better described as an elite apologetics team. Gerhard grew up in Europe, where he says that the writings of Ellen White are not particularly appreciated. My mother had these testimonies in German. I had no particular interest in her books or her life. While I was living in Europe, I attended Newport College for a couple of years. But even there, there was no particular interest in it. What changed was my attending of Avondale College in Australia. Avondale College was established on the advice of Ellen White, and it became a model for Adventist schools around the world. And when Gerhard attended in the late 60s, he developed an appreciation for Ellen White. We had a professor by the name of Desmond Ford, who was an excellent teacher and a great defender of the spirit of prophecy. And he quoted spirit of prophecy from memory in practically every class we had. Just as a reminder, the spirit of prophecy is a way that many people refer to the writings of Ellen White in general. He was very strong on Spirit of Prophecy, and when I saw what was happening in Australia with the health food industry, with the schools, with the hospitals, I realized and recognized the value of the Spirit of Prophecy and uh, the writings of Ellen White because I experienced what the advantages were when we accept the spirit of prophecy. And so from then on, I had a a great interest in the writings of Ellen White. 
When I returned to Europe, I began my ministry in Austria. It soon became known that I was uh, acquainted with the spirit of prophecy. And of course, I spoke English and the people came with their questions to me. And so over the years in my ministry in, in Austria, I spent about 19 years there. I was the point man when it came to uh, questions on the spirit of prophecy. During Gerhard's ministry in Europe, he would sometimes run into situations where he needed help working through a question. And in those situations, he would turn to his former spirit of prophecy defending professor. I communicated with Desmond Ford when I left for about 10 years. Whenever I had a question that I could not solve, I wrote to him, he wrote back. Gerhard didn't know about it, but during these 10 years, Desmond had started to believe that the doctrine of the investigative judgment, as understood by the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and described by Ellen White in The Great Controversy, was not biblical. And in 1979, Desmond, who was then a professor at Pacific Union College, spoke at a meeting of the Adventist Forum about his new views. I didn't know anything about the forum meeting, but soon thereafter, I received uh, cassettes from two different people because they knew my situation and my relationship to him. And I was devastated when I listened to his lecture. I couldn't sleep and I was really shocked because in class he had said just the opposite. He had defended strongly defended the investigative judgment and Ellen White. But obviously something happened while he was studying in England for two years that changed his views. Just before this, Gerhard had arranged for Desmond to come speak at a minister's meeting in Austria. But after the Adventist Forum meeting in 1979, he wrote me a letter and said, I'm sorry, but the General Conference has stopped all my travels. Because he was suspended, they gave him six months to write a defense of his views, not just about the investigative judgment, but also about Ellen White. The situation culminated in a meeting at a place called Glacier View, where other theologians and church administrators evaluated Desmond's claims. And to summarize it far too briefly, the church ultimately disagreed with Desmond's disagreement with the church's existing views. And Desmond was dismissed from the ministry and from his teaching position. It was a very difficult time for people on both sides of the issue. A large number of pastors left the ministry feeling that the church had been wrong to dismiss him. Others, like Gerhard, felt that Desmond had been wrong, and they had to wrestle with how someone who had encouraged and mentored their belief in Ellen White had changed course. There's much more to the story than we can get into here, but in spite of, and in a way because of his past relationship with Desmond, Gerhard still felt confident in Ellen White's ministry, and continued to develop a deeply informed understanding of Ellen White's writings and the Bible. About 20 years after Glacier View, Gerhard joined the Biblical Research Institute, where he has contributed his skills in the Old Testament and Ellen White to many different questions. I spoke to Gerhard because The Great Controversy is in a sense the least biblical of the five books in the Conflict of the Ages series. As Lisa shared earlier, it deals primarily with church history and events that take place after the biblical narrative drops off. 
However, the last third of the book deals with events in biblical prophecy, but unless you're very familiar with the Adventist prophetic understanding, it can be hard to know what is derived from the Bible and what is unique to Alan. So I asked Gerhard if he could help out, and I had him begin by describing the theme of the Great Controversy. Well, the Great Controversy, in brief, is the battle between Satan and Christ. It's a battle that began in heaven and will, of course, end here on earth, but it involves all of us. It involved all the angels. It involves all humanity. We are either on one side or the other. The particular understanding that Adventists have of the Great Controversy is informed by Ellen White, but Gerhard points out that the theme is itself very scriptural. Whenever we deal with Scripture, we come across the conflict between good and evil, between Christ and Satan, and we are involved in it, and our eternal destiny hangs together with it. Because depending on which side of the battle we are, that determines what happens to us when we die or when we are resurrected and uh, where we end up. Either we are annihilated or we can enjoy eternity in heaven. I had Gerhard walk through some of the passages in Scripture that support this theme. If you're an Adventist, this may be very familiar to you, but to understand what is uniquely Ellen, it's helpful to get a quick refresher. Well, it begins in in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. You remember, I will put enmity between you and the woman. This is God speaking to the serpent. And between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. That is the beginning of the great controversy in the Garden of Eden. Another instance is in the book of Job, chapter 2, verse 1. Where there is a convocation in heaven. The sons of God came to present themselves, it says, before the Lord, and Satan also came. Satan accuses God of preferring Job. God allows Satan to afflict Job. And Job remained true and faithful and became an example for all humanity of what it means to be involved in this battle, even though we may have uh, difficulties as Job had. Another example is in the historical chapters of Daniel, where Daniel and his friends are repeatedly tested. The most important text in the book of Daniel is in chapter 10, verse 13, where we are told the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me, that is, Gabriel is speaking, 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. God here pulls away the curtain and shows what is happening uh, beyond our earthly life, what we see, there is a spiritual realm where this battle is going on, that Christ is trying to uh, win people to his side and Satan is trying to win people to his side. And so in that case, in, in Daniel, it concerns the Persian kings. But it is probably, there's no other text in Scripture that describes more clearly the struggle between the invisible powers that control and influence nations than this verse 13 in chapter 10. 
Next up in the New Testament is the temptation of Jesus. Chapter 4, verse 1, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So here you have in the life of Jesus, right at the beginning of his ministry, Satan is tempting him, trying to divert him from his path. And this goes on throughout his ministry. In Matthew 8:16, that evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons. And he cast out the spirits with the word and healed all who were sick. Also in verse 31, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. This is the great controversy in the life of Jesus, where he's confronted with demons, with Satan's agents, and is victorious. And then, of course, the greatest battle in the life of Jesus came in Gethsemane, where Luke tells us, being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. This is where Satan tried to prevent him from going to the cross. And it was the strongest fight that Jesus had because as a human being, he shrank from the cross, but he knew his mission and he overcame Satan's attempts to um, prevent him from going to the cross. There are quite a few places in the New Testament where the spiritual battle is referenced. Other passages in the Gospels, the book of Acts, and in the epistles. Paul speaks about the armor of God in Ephesians that we need to put on because we are fighting not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And the great controversy ends in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is really significant for how it relates to Ellen White's understanding of events in heaven before creation, as well as events at the end of time. In chapter 12, verse 4, we are told how Satan took a third of the angels with him when he was cast out. And when he came to this earth, he uh, tried to kill Jesus. The woman gave birth and the dragon tried to kill the child that she brought forth, which of course was Jesus. And then he persecuted the church. Gerhard points out here that the history of the Christian church, with all of the persecution that occurred, is in a way described by this passage in Revelation. And it ends then in chapter 12, verse 17, where we read that the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. But the great controversy will come to an end in Revelation 20, verse 9, when after the thousand years, Satan gathers again the forces of humanity here on earth. He marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. So here we have the end of the great controversy.
The book of Revelation is filled with a lot of imagery that can make it a little difficult to understand on a casual read-through. There are dragons and lampstands and horsemen and blood that cries out. Throughout history, there have been many different interpretations of what exactly everything means, and part of what Ellen White does in The Great Controversy is give detail to these somewhat broad-stroke symbols. But more significantly, Ellen White helped give us this understanding of the Great Controversy theme in the first place. I would say without God's intervention and uh, giving the spirit of prophecy or the prophetic gift, our church would not exist. Our pioneers would not have come to the understanding. Now, they studied the Bible, and all our doctrines are based on the Bible. During the late 40s, when we had these Bible conferences, the brethren came together to study, she says. And, of course, when they came to a point where they could not go on because they were stuck, God would reveal to her the right way. In other words, when there were different opinions, God revealed to her which opinion was the right one, and then she was able to tell them, and from that time on, this was then the position they held. So yes, the great controversy could not be fully understood until God intervened and showed her the great controversy. Now, please note Other churches also understand that there is a great controversy, or at least a a battle going on between Christ and Satan. We are not the first ones, and she wasn't the first one to do that. But she explicitly made this the overarching theme in our church. I asked Gerhard if he could point out some of the specific details that Ellen shares that aren't found in the Bible, and he noted some specific end-time events that she covers. We can't get into depth on any of them here, but you'll be familiar with them if you've read or read the book. Ellen White speaks about the ceiling, the latter rain, the loud cry, the shaking, the early time of trouble, and the time of trouble, and then Armageddon and the second coming. So, for example, the ceiling is a concept that we cannot clearly discern in scripture as such. Now, there is a text for this, but in the context of the end time or the latter rain or the loud cry in Revelation 18, 1 to 4, and then the shaking. You see, the shaking, for example, appears only in one text in Amos, but it talks about the time just prior to the fall of Jerusalem in the Old Testament. But she uses that concept and transfers it to the end time. There are biblical concepts, but she puts them together in the context of the final events. And that's what is new in her writing in contrast to when you read the scripture. Uh, You wouldn't automatically come to the conclusion that she came or she used that text when you just read the text in the Old Testament. One thing I wanted to ask Gerhard about is the scarier parts of this book and this theme. In general, Ellen White points to there being a very high bar for righteousness. And while forgiveness is always available, there is, throughout the series, some strong warnings about the consequence of our actions. 
seeing a controversy between Christ and Satan as the overall theme of scripture and the reality of our everyday lives can honestly feel a little overwhelming. Well, the only way you can get away from this fear is uh, your trust in Jesus. If you have a close relationship with the Lord, you don't have to fear anything. You don't have to fear the judgment. Unfortunately, many Adventists are afraid of the judgment. But if you are in Christ, you have nothing to fear about the judgment. You have nothing to fear about the future, even if there is persecution, even if you are shut up in prison or whatever. Um, the fact that we are in Jesus helps us to overcome this fear. One of the attempts of Satan is to discourage us and to make us doubt the love of God and to make us unsure about our own salvation. That is his purpose. That is what he's trying to do to discourage as many people as possible from trusting God's love and make us think, well, I have no hope, I, I can't make it. That is not what God wants, this is what Satan wants. He wants to discourage us, and that's why it's so important that we have a living relationship with our Lord, day by day, where we can come to Him and pour out our hearts and say, I'm sorry I said this or did this, uh, please make sure that this does not harm the other person. Or Our prayers need to be in trusting that God will hear and answer our prayer. We already talked about the process behind The Great Controversy, originally published in 1888. But the 1888 edition of The Great Controversy sold so well that the publishing houses had to do many reprints over the next few years. They're printing and reprinting and reprinting and reprinting. Merlin says that after 27 printings, they just stopped numbering which printing they were on. And finally, they come down to 1907, and the plates are about worn out. These are the big metal plates that were used to press the ink onto the paper. And after however many tens or hundreds of thousands of impressions, the lead type begins to compress and blur and not be quite as good. And so you have to redo those plates. And they realized they were getting to that point. And this led Ellen White then to do a revision. Now, this was not a major revision like the 1884 to 1888 edition, which was a major revision, a rewriting entirely. Instead, for the 1911 edition, they went through and added footnotes from other sources, not so much because they were trying to give credibility to it, but because there was a recognition that there needs to be some attribution if she's drawing from some other people, at least some ideas. You may remember from our episode on literary borrowing that ideas around attribution were still being ironed out at this time. Some of the sources that Ellen White borrowed from themselves borrowed from other people without attribution, and Merlin and others have noted that while standards of attribution were around at the time, it differed slightly from genre to genre. If you go back to the mid-1800s and the last part of the century, 
Most of the writing in those periods with the American Tract Society and the various societies is evangelistic in nature. It's devotional in nature. And they copy from each other all the time. It's rampant. It's sort of like evangelists copy from each other and no one cares. So people don't understand this about this genre, as it were, of pietistic writing. But as you get into the 20th century, there's a shift in the way things are done. And so that is addressed. And so someone prepares this. Ellen White didn't prepare those footnotes. One of the things that made this process of including references difficult is that because attribution wasn't originally very significant to Ellen White, she did read and collect extensively, but she didn't always keep detailed notes of where these things came from. Maybe you haven't heard of this. I mean, she would find interesting things in publications and she would clip them out and put them in scrapbooks. And she had a very large library. I mean, when she died, she had in excess of 900 volumes in her library. So she was herself reading. She had a private library. She had an office library. So her assistants were also gathering some books and were reading them. So there's, there was a research process that was a lifelong process for Ellen White and at her direction and at the interest of her assistants as well. For the Great Controversy 1911 edition, I think... It involved some other people. She asked some people she respected in the church, scholars, to actually investigate these things more carefully. And so you have quite a bit of stuff that comes to her from this research. Now, it should be noted that she doesn't just wholesale take whatever they send her. She's using her own discretion. And there was a few things that W.W. Prescott said, "You you should do this. And she says, no, I'm not going to do that. She'd do it her own way. So she wasn't controlled by the research, but she did appreciate it and saw it as helpful. Some people are troubled by this description, that somehow this isn't God working. But that's not a good way to look at it. God used every means to help his messengers, whether they were biblical or post-biblical, to come to understand what he wanted them to share. And so he's not just using only visions. He's, it's an incarnational model of inspiration. It's, he's helping the person to come to understand so that the thoughts are clear, at least the crucial thoughts. Along with the addition of footnotes, there were a few changes that were made here and there to minor historical details. Some people today and at the time find this idea a little troubling, but Merlin explains that Ellen White drew from her visions along with historical sources, and there was a blending of the two. You have to understand how she receives her visions. She would often have a picture, a scene. Like, for example, say the St. Bartholomew's Massacre, she would see the massacre. She would see the bigger pictures. She'd see the angels and she'd see Satan's angels, God's angels and Satan's angels in conflict there. And she's trying to understand what God is showing her, but at the same time, she's reading histories. So God's connecting her reading and what he's showing her. And so some of the finer details are not given her in vision, and she draws some of these from her reading. 
One of the examples of a detail that changed from the 1888 to the 1911 edition has to do with how exactly the St. Bartholomew's Massacre began. The beginning of that terrible event was the ringing of the bell. Historians have gone back and forth on what bell was rung to start this massacre in France. And at least the source that Ellen White was looking at, uh, at that time was saying the bell of the palace. Well, W.W. Prescott had been reading some of the more current histories of the day, and he was saying, no, no, it wasn't that. It was the, the bell of a church just outside of the palace. And so there's this disagreement. So Ellen White, this is an inconsequential matter. She's not writing these to give us the infallible history of all the fine details. It's not a, it's a spiritual history. It's a great controversy theme. So in the 1911, if you compare the 1888-1911, she just says a bell tolling. So she doesn't say where it was. It's not important for her. She just leaves that off. Well, historians have since come back and some say, well, it actually was the bell of the palace. So, okay, what is it? We could argue about that. We could maybe figure it out, maybe not. But it's these types of things that you find differences in the 1911 edition that she adjusts trying to make the book as good as it could be because it's having such wide circulation. So this is the 1911 edition that, that was published and we essentially have the same book today that we're using. Ellen White personally approved of all the changes that were ultimately made, but that doesn't mean she approved of all of the changes that were suggested. If you imagine what a Google Doc would have looked like for the revisions, there were plenty of places where she clicked on the X, rejecting suggestions that didn't align with what God had shown her. Arthur White, Ellen's grandson and one of Merlin's predecessors at the White Estate, himself preferred to refer to the 1911 edition as a refinement and not a revision. Also, it's worth mentioning here that however the scope of the Great Controversy theme may have grown and expanded and been revised and refined throughout all the different versions, one thing made it into every book in the series, and it's one of Merlin's favorite parts about the series. If you look at the way she began Patriarchs and Prophets and the way she ends Great Controversy, she's intentional about focusing this whole theme of the great controversy on the love of God. It starts out with the love of God. Go read it. You know, read the first paragraphs of Patriarchs and Prophets and then read the last paragraph of Great Controversy. And she summarizes the whole Great Controversy theme in its beginning and its end as centered in the love of God. And so for me, That's deeply moving, deeply moving. The chapter in Great Controversy, God's People Delivered, is so powerful for me. And the first chapter of Patriarchs and Prophets that deals with Satan's rebellion in heaven gives insights into the origin of sin and evil that's in the Bible. It is there. You have Lucifer and the the morning star. and It's a biblical concept, but because of the visions and the revelations she has, there's this expanding of understanding that is so rich. So those are some parts that are particularly meaningful for me as I look at this great controversy framework. 
that God helped her to represent so powerfully and beautifully. So we've heard about the history that this book covers, learned about the process of writing this book, talked about the biblical core of this book, and then learned about the process of refining the book. Lastly, we want to look into the future that this book covers. We've already touched on some of it, but we want to go just a little bit further in because it's a major part of the book. My name is Clifford Goldstein. I've been at the General Conference since 1984, and I am presently editor of the Adult Bible Study Guide, which is more commonly known as the Quarterly. And I've been in that job since 1999. If you're not familiar with them already, some of the apocalyptic elements of this book can be a lot to wrap your mind around. One of the more significant claims in this book is that someday the United States, in league with the Roman Catholic Church, will enforce a national Sunday law and begin persecuting those who keep the Seventh-day Sabbath, and Sunday worship will be the mark of the beast. To put it bluntly, that doesn't seem very likely these days. The world is very different than it was in Ellen's time, with Christianity being far less dominant in society than it used to be. Generally speaking, Ellen's views of end-time events can seem a little hard to believe, like they're a little bit outdated, back from a time when the world was supposed to have ended earlier. Across Cliff's career in the church, he's interacted with and written about this future stuff, these end-time events, quite a lot. So I wanted to hear how he deals with the seemingly unlikely. Well, I'll say this. For the 40-some years I've been an Adventist, and I accepted the message probably six, eight months after I met the Adventists, and I've never doubted America's role in prophecy— But, you know, back in 1979, 1980, it was very difficult to see because of the Soviet Union. How old are you? How old are you? Uh, I am 29. All right, yeah, see, you'd be still kind of young to know. You didn't grow up under the Cold War. I mean, the, the, the Soviet Union was this behemoth. And I grew up my whole life, you know, I I remember being young, thinking, why even bother to go to school? One day the Russians are going to nuke us, we're going to nuke them, and it's over. But but anyway, it almost seemed impossible, this idea of America fulfilling its prophetic role because of the Soviet Union, you know? And and I thought, all right, Lord, I'm going to take a deep breath. You showed me in Daniel 2, you're in control of the nations. I'm just going to trust you because what? Was the Soviet Union going to just disappear or something? Well, I'm I'm telling you, in 1979, 1980, that was as crazy as saying you think, oh, I don't know, you think America would disappear or something, you know. But anyway, the bottom line is the Soviet Union collapsed and America became the world's only superpower. few people I spoke with mentioned this, that at different times in the history of Adventism, some of Ellen White's understandings of America in prophecy seemed incredibly unlikely. Notably, at the time that the Great Controversy came out in 1888, it would have seemed absurd to suggest that America would even become a powerful force in the first place. The Civil War had ended relatively recently, and it wasn't until after World War I that America really began to become a dominant force. So certain unlikely things have already borne out. And Cliff shares this to say that, yeah, things can seem unlikely, but they can change quickly. And even today, he says, we've been seeing things change very quickly. This country has very stable institutions. I remember Watergate. 
We basically threw out of office the most powerful man in the world. And Richard Nixon raises his, gives a speech, gets on a helicopter, flies away. Jerry Ford lifts up his hand, swears on the Bible, becomes the new president. Not a tank in the street, nothing. That's how stable our institutions were. But I can honestly say for the past couple years... I've already said to my wife even a year ago, I think we're seeing the beginning and the end of American democracy. And this was even before COVID. This country is in whole new territory now. And between COVID showing how overnight the whole world, the whole world is, you know, kaboom, you know, and now suddenly with it's it's... uh, It's pretty heavy stuff. I mean, one of the things I've learned, though, I don't know how things are going to unfold. You know, I've often said the Bible, particularly the book of Revelation, paints last day events in very wide swaths. Okay, very broad strokes. Sister White comes in and like the great controversy, and she fills things in a little more narrowly. But she still paints pretty broad strokes. And I wrote, I've had a column in the Avenus Review since almost about the time you were born. And I wrote a thing about, I called between the lines or between the strokes. And I said, we've got to be very careful because I've done this. I predicted, oh, this is going to happen and that's going to happen prophetically. And it never does. Nine out of ten times, it never does. So I learned years ago, we have to be very careful about speculating beyond. We know church and state is going to unite in this country. Somehow or another, Sunday legislation is going to come in. And, and the other thing, too, though, I'm not going to get into it now, but how Sabbath Sunday will become an issue, I don't know. But I am so thoroughly theologically convinced on terms of from the book of Revelation, how that makes so much sense. I truly don't see how the mark of the beast could be anything other than Sabbath and Sunday. That's how clear it seems to me from that. So that um, I, I'm, I could almost be dogmatic about it. How it will, how the events will come about I don't know any more than what's written in there. I, that's, that's what I know. Beyond that, we're speculating. But I'm telling you, I'm 65 years old. I lived through the riots in the Vietnam War. I've lived through, I've seen this country divided. But I ain't never seen anything like what's going on in America now. As Cliff has already mentioned, it's important to be careful about speculating. And he notes that in his lifetime, church members have pointed to various events, like the election of a Catholic president, as a sign that some of the end-time events Ellen White described were beginning to take place. And so Cliff tries to be careful, tries not to read into things too much, tries not to look at individual events and consider them in themselves indications. But he does think it's valuable to look at trends. And this is the thing I've learned that I've tried to tell people— We don't know individual events. I don't know of any real specific individual events that she talks about that leads, you know, in specific. So we we have to just look at the trends. And 
the trend of America as the world's only superpower, the trend of the Catholics and Protestants uniting, you know, and, and coming together, that's been powerful. So you look at some of those trends, and yeah, it's very exciting. And now, again, I don't want to read too much into everything that's happening, because we know the lamb-like beast is going to speak like a dragon. And uh, But again, is all this happening now? Sure, this could lead to it next year. Or, you know, I could be dead and buried and you could be my age and we're still going on. But sooner or later, you know, I'm a believer that these things are going to happen. Basically, as she described it. One idea that has come up while I've been discussing this with people is that there are some biblical prophecies which were conditional. And I asked Cliff about this, whether some of these futures that Ellen White wrote about might have been conditional. Ah, 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 da, 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 <laughs> There's classical prophecy and there's apocalyptic prophecy. Okay. Okay, sure. There's a lot of classical. You read some of those unfulfilled things in Ezekiel and, and all that. Yeah, the, our scholars make a difference between classical prophecy and apocalyptic prophecy. Daniel 2 is not conditional. Okay, you know Daniel too. You see, that that not conditional. That stone cut without without hands is gonna come. Oh, so Jesus isn't gonna come back. The second coming of Jesus is conditional. Maybe if events aren't fulfilled, then Jesus will never come back. Nah, nah, nah. I don't buy that for a minute. I had to clarify that my question was more about how exactly the end of the world would play out, not whether it would end. But I did think it was a helpful distinction. You know, I could almost buy into that, except I don't get it from Ellen. I get it from Revelation. You know, America is going to unite with the first beast, the first, you know, they are going to bring persecution. Now, the exact, look, I don't want to, you know, I have been a believer in Ellen White now for 40 years. There's not the slightest doubt in my mind of Ellen White's prophetic gift. I mean, I just, not a doubt. The question that we as a church have that they argued about in her day, and they're arguing about it now, and we're going to argue about it till till the Lord comes, is what exactly is her role? What is her authority? How should she be used? You know, and, and I, you know, I'm not one of these Ellen White, this infallible thing. She herself said she wasn't, but I'd still tread very carefully on that. But see, the thing for me is, I believe this stuff because I believe our interpretation of the Book of Revelation. Cliff became an Adventist in the '80s, one of those times that the church was going through a theological crisis. And he says that for him, he had to make sure that he could prove what he believed from the Bible itself. It was crazy. And I was forced early on, because I almost left right after I came in. I mean, I just got walloped by this stuff. And I determined early on I was going to make sure I could get everything I needed to know to be an Adventist out of the Bible and the Bible alone. And for him, like many others, what he understands from the Bible alone gives him confidence in Ellen White's prophetic gift. And though this book and these end-time events involve there being a pretty terrible time for the followers of God, 
he describes it as hopeful. Oh, I just think those last few pages, those last few with her depiction of the new heaven and the new earth and just... She talks about with eyes undimmed. They, oh, you just got to read it. And oh, it's so hopeful. It's so hopeful. Yeah, I think the last pages of the great controversy, you read it. And, and I have so many reasons to believe it. I have worked through this Adventist message for 40 years. I've looked at it at every angle. And I just don't know how this can't be the truth. I just don't know. How. I, I have looked at it from every conceive of, every that I could conceive of. And, and Ellen White's prophetic gift, I, I, again, what is her role? What is her authority? How does inspiration work? We'll be fighting over those till the second coming. But the reality of the gift, oh, my goodness. Well, you know, they say at the heart of most good stories or every good story, there's a love story. And this was a love story. This is David again, the vegan straight-edge punk rocker from the beginning of our show. My girlfriend of about three years uh, was also going to school at the University of Wyoming. And uh, she had been down there already for a year, and so I had come down to join her. And I came home one day. We were living just a little outside of Laramie, say 23 years old, and I come home. And she's crying, and she says that she's going to break up with me. It was the middle of winter. David moved out. And uh, found myself basically just renting a room, going to school still, and completely heartbroken devastated. I've never been a depressed person, but I spent a lot of time in my room just kind of alone, in misery, sad, crying, going through all of the sort of things that you go through when your heart's been broken. David says that during this time, in this rented room, he would always sit against the same wall. Listening to really loud music and maybe studying or just sitting there being miserable. And on one occasion when I went into my room, I just, I don't know why, maybe there was like a sense or maybe I, it was just totally serendipitous, but I sat against a different wall. And when I sat against this different wall, the thing that I was staring at was my bookshelf. And as I'm just going over the books, and I've always been a reader, I love reading, I had read many of the titles, but one title that I had not read was this book, The Great Controversy. David had kept the book as a memento, but he had no intention of actually reading it. And something said to me, I just had a sense, there was something inside of me that drove me, sort of impelled me. And I had this unction, and the unction was, go pick up that book and read it. And so I got up, walked across the room, picked up the book, and no idea what to expect. Like, I have no idea what this book is about. And, and there's really no tells on the cover, right? It's just the world, right? A picture of the earth. And then it says the great controversy. And um, I read the first chapter. And the thing that I remember, I remember it like it was yesterday, is that it opens up with Jesus weeping. 
It's like Luke 17, 18, 19, that whole passage there where Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem. And I immediately felt this instant kinship when I read that first chapter and Jesus was weeping. And I remember that being so weird to me. I was like, I thought Jesus was like this God figure, this religious figure. Why is he crying? And I was just drawn in to chapter one, which is the story of the destruction of Jerusalem and how Jesus has come to help Jerusalem, to save Jerusalem. And they have um, thwarted his efforts and, and he's weeping, he's crying. And I felt this kinship because I had spent the last uh, several weeks, could have been months at that point, just in a state of sadness and depression with a lot of tears. And I'm not a crier. I'm, I'm not somebody who's generally prone to crying, but I had been crying. I open up this book, Jesus is crying. I'm like, I like this guy. This guy's a crier. I'm a crier. And I was drawn to the book. And the truth of the matter is, is that that's a big book, like 700 plus pages. And I had read the whole thing inside of a month and it completely changed my life. The thing that really impressed me about the book, The Great Controversy, is that it it moved through territory that was quite new to me, right? So it's basically a story of the development of the Christian church. It, it goes from the destruction of Jerusalem down to the return of Jesus, the second coming of Jesus, and traces the history of Christianity. And I remember being particularly struck with many of the Protestant reformers because these were men, and in some cases women, who were so deeply passionate about Scripture, about the Bible, that they would give their lives for it, that they, they would take considerable risks to either have the Bible themselves, to stand by the Bible, or to make the Bible available to others. And I remember being struck thinking there, there's got to be something in that book that's worth dying for. There's got to be something in that book that would turn these people this passionately to God. And so that turned me to the Bible. It was really the great controversy that led me to Scripture, and then Scripture and the great controversy together that led me to an understanding of Jesus as a person. After he began to read, he called up Josh, the painfully slow-talking guy who had given him Bible studies, to ask him for some more resources. I called up Josh and I said, Josh, I'm reading The Great Controversy and it's incredible. And then I remember hearing like, dook, 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 dook. and I was like, what was that? And he said, oh, I just dropped the phone. <laughs> he couldn't believe it. He and Mary loaded up this care package of, like, Adventist Bible studies, and they sent me videos. And I distinctly remember, probably within a week or two of me calling Josh and him sending me that care package, I had gone back to Rapid City, South Dakota, because you, you were often going back and forth. And uh, I went to Rapid City. I walked into the restaurant. Mary comes up to me, gives me this giant hug. And she's just like, I always knew. I always knew. You know, she was... She was a woman of incredible faith and a woman of incredible prayer. And there was just no doubt in her mind that some of us were going to become committed followers of Jesus. And, and uh, she's just like, she just took it in stride. I mean, she was absolutely thrilled and completely unsurprised. David had been studying pre-med at this time, and he was enjoying it. 
But after reading The Great Controversy, he decided to take a year off to figure out what it was he really wanted to do. He learned about a three-month-long Adventist Bible training school, and he decided to go. And he loved it. And then I had the opportunity to go work as what's called a Bible worker, which is basically just somebody that goes out, knocks on doors, or meets contacts from a church and gives them Bible studies. He loved that too. I was shortly after that given some opportunities to preach. And he also loved that. And it made him reconsider whether medicine was right for him. That's how I ended up being a pastor. It was still another two to three years beyond that. But uh, the short version is, is I took what was supposed to be a year off of pre-med And it ended up, well, I'm still on that year off. It ended up being a very long time. David ended up sharing what he was learning with some of his friends who had also known Mary and Tom. Pretty early on, he gave Bible studies to one of his good friends, Nathan. And Nathan also became an Adventist and also became a pastor. There's a number of us, though, five of us that are now in Adventist ministry from Mary's Vegetarian Restaurant in Rapid City, South Dakota. David has since shared this book with many other people, but his experience with it has led him to believe that it's really important to have a relationship with someone first and to give them some context before they read this book. I think rather than just giving the book and saying, read this book, I think you need to give the book in a context. And you give the book in the context of, hey, this book was written in the late 1800s. This is a book that describes in the language of the day the sort of stages of the development of the Christian church, and and I describe those stages as four. The formation of the Christian church, the deformation of the Christian church, the reformation of the Christian church, and then the climax of the book is the fourth stage, the restoration of the kingdom of God on earth. And so as you move through those sort of four stages, from formation to deformation to reformation to restoration, it gives you the experience of the Christian church down through history. And so I think you have to set it up. One of David's favorite things about this whole series is the last chapter of The Great Controversy. And it's a good way to close out. And the chapter is titled, appropriately enough, The Controversy Ended. And if you just go read the last five or six or seven pages of this, or the whole chapter, it's absolutely amazing. And in particular, I've always loved the very last paragraph. And I'll just read that here. She writes, The Great Controversy Controversy is is ended. ended. Sin and sinners are no more. The entire universe is clean. One pulse of harmony and gladness beats through the vast creation. From him who created all flow life and light and gladness throughout the realms of illimitable space. From the minutest atom to the greatest world, all things animate and inanimate in their unshadowed beauty and perfect joy declare that God is love. The Conflict Audible is produced by Types and Symbols, an independent creative studio, as a companion to The Conflict Beautiful a new hardcover NKJV edition of Ellen White's Conflict of the Ages series. We've also put together a reading plan to help you work your way through the Conflict of the Ages in a year. Learn more at theconflictbeautiful.com read. This episode was produced by me, Ivan Ruiz-Not, with help from Olivia Ruiz-Not, Alex Prouty, and Kevin Burton. 
Additional production assistance by Ryan Becker and Peter Domstiegt. Thanks as well to Tim Poyer for his input. Many thanks especially to our guests, David Ashrick, Dr. Lisa Clark-Diller, Dr. Merlin Burt, Dr. Gerhard Fondel, and Clifford Goldstein for taking the time to talk to us for this episode, and to my co-founder, Mark Cook. And please, please know that people being on this show or helping out with it or being related to us does not in any way mean that they agree with everything or anything we say, nor does it mean that they endorse or support the conflict beautiful. They're just really nice people trying to help us do a good job at understanding and explaining Ellen. If you want to learn more about Ellen White from the people she entrusted with her estate, visit whiteestate.org. We are in no way affiliated with them, but they have a lot of great resources. Also, if you're a really nice person who can help us understand and explain Ellen, let us know. Did we get something wrong? Did we leave something out? Do you know a ton about something we've touched on? Did we miss an important point? Do you have questions? Do you just disagree? We probably want to talk to you. Visit theconflictaudible.com to get in touch. Anyway, that's the spiel.